Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. I'm so glad that you could join us because the topic that we're covering today is a first for us on Go Green Radio. As many of you know, we've covered ocean issues in many different ways. We've talked about ocean acidification. We've talked about plastic garbage patches out in the ocean, the impact on coral reefs. We've talked about uh, ocean life. But we've never talked about the people living on the islands that are faced with one of the most pressing issues, and that is rising sea levels. And I'm so pleased that we have a guest today who's done a lot of work in this area. She's been visiting with various island nations. Um, she's a lawyer by trade, and so she's also dealing with some of the international legal issues that these uh, people who live on threatened islands as the sea levels rise are facing, and we're really going to dig in deep to this issue today. Our guest today is Brooke Meekins, and you can find out more about her work in a couple of places. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But if you'd like to take a look at her blogs and some of her work and some of her pictures as we're talking with her, open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.drowningislands.com. Well, Brooke, welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be a part of the show. Well, it's really great to have you, and I think that we're lucky enough to get you fresh off of a recent trip that you took. It's my understanding that you've recently been traveling to some of the impacted islands, and I'd love to hear where you went, what you saw, and give us give us some of your recent observations. Yeah, you bet. I, I am just on the heels of a trip, and I cannot stop talking about the places that I visited, so the timing is perfect. I've always wanted to go to two of what I call the Drowning Island Nations, which are Tuvalu and the country of Kiribati. And they're just a little bit more difficult to get to than most of the other countries that I've visited in the past, Mm -hmm. meaning you just have to take a longer trip in order to go. And since I have this law practice, it's a little bit difficult to leave, but I found a perfect window of opportunity. And so I was able to go to Tuvalu and Kiribati, and also to an island called Vanua Levu in Fiji that has its own relocation project going on. And so I went to Tuvalu first, and Tuvalu is the fourth smallest country in the world. It's just mm. nine square miles. It's very, very small. Wow. And, yeah, it's, it's tiny. I visited the capital chain of islands, which is called Funafuti. 
And most of these islands are linked together during low tide. Um, but then, of course, they separate during high tide. I had this really incredible experience there one day of walking to an outer island that was it's separated by jagged, sharp rocks. And then about halfway through the walk, I realized that the tide was coming in. Oh, and no. so, yeah, so you basically have to hurry to get across to the next island. It takes a long time. And I thought that was a great illustration and a powerful experience of how fragile life is on an atoll. People really are impacted by the daily tide schedules in very real ways. Um, also, uh, there's quite a bit of people, I mean, almost the whole entire country live directly on the ocean. It's either the ocean side with the waves or it's the bay side. And so when you walk around, it's really easy to see climate change and also just the typical person on Tuvalu knows about climate change. I mean, they know the term and they're happy to talk with you about their experience with it. Uh-huh. I think because of the size of the country, it's incredibly well organized in terms of their experience with climate change and then also their adaptation to it. And so it's not uncommon to see islanders with water catchments where they catch their fresh drinking water with their own personal home gardens, which is really encouraging. There's a lot of recycling going on in Tuvalu. So I thought that was really great to see. Recycling. That's very interesting on such a small island. You know, it's hard to, to think about where, you know, what they would do with the recycling, but that's great that they're doing it. Uh, it sure is. It really yeah. is. Um, I also witnessed a lot of U.S. presence in Tuvalu. The U.S. has certainly done some great aid projects. And in fact, I met quite a few aid workers there. However, we've also done quite a bit of harm in that country. So during the World Wars, we dug deep trenches between some of the islands in the main chain, and that was so that military ships could pass through. But this now allows for much stronger wave currents to pass through, and so that exacerbates the erosion of the beaches and then also the storm surges that these people experience. And I experienced those deep waves while I was riding out on a boat to a conservation island. It really makes a difference in terms of the mm-hmm. size of the waves. And then we've also left burrow pits deep in the middle of the island. These are pits that were dug out by the U.S. military because they needed the actual physical land in order to create the landing strip for their planes. Oh. And now it's impossible to fill these burrow pits because there's a drastic shortage of land. I mean, they literally cannot fill them up. And so these burrow pits have filled with water, and now there's mosquitoes there, and there's trash that forms there. Water collects during storm surges, and they're also just really unsightly, and they're unhealthy. But the country can't do anything to fill them up. Wow. That's that's really sad. Talk, talk about the people in terms of... Um, you know, they see some of these changes going on. What's their attitude um, towards their future on the island? Well, their attitudes in general are lovely. These are some of the kindest, if not the kindest and most friendliest people I've ever met. Um, they, they have a very fine-tuned sense of climate change awareness, and I think that might have to do with their size. The government is very or- organized and committed to teaching people about climate change. Despite that, they have a lovely attitude towards Westerners. I think that they do know 
about um, human emissions and how that contributes to their plight, Uh but they really don't carry a sense of blame. They're more just personally committed to partnering with people who are willing to hear about their experience and help in some in some way. I mean, I, I would just flat out ask plenty of people if they blamed Westerners or emitting nations or coal companies. You know, you can list out uh, the different causes and they say, no, we don't blame them, but we just really are looking for people who are willing to help. Right. Do you get the sense that the island people feel hopeful that they'll be able to stay on the islands for many generations to come? Or do you get the sense that there's kind of a looming, imminent migration in their future or in their family's future? Well, every island is different, of course. And then on the islands, every individual is different. And so it's quite common to get two very different answers to the same question on this particular topic. Uh But Every single person I've ever talked to on one of my island missions wants to stay. I mean, that's undoubtedly, that's undoubtedly true. But they also talk about opportunities that they want to have in terms of picking the place that they eventually might have to go to. And then they particularly are concerned about their children having options. So uh-huh. while they, while I get a sense that they want to stay and they especially want the chance to stay, They also want options in terms of where they move to in the future. Sure. Well, that makes perfect sense. Now, I know that you've also worked with some of the governments of these island nations, and I'm wondering um, what the government leaders' outlook on this situation is. What What are some of the things that they're telling you, and what are some of the things that they're asking for in terms of assistance? Well, the government leaders are much more aware of what causes climate change and then also the world's stance on their situation and on their future. And they know the complexity behind the international negotiations because these islanders actually go to the negotiations. So they're much more worried than the typical individual you meet, um, and they're preoccupied with finding a solution, and that's both long-term and short-term. The problem is these island governments depend on aid dollars from Western countries and organizations. And it's kind of a catch-22, or it's like biting the hand that feeds it, because as climate change worsens, these islands, of course, have weather-related disasters like cyclones and droughts and things of that nature. And so as emitting countries cause these weather-related disasters, the island nations rely on foreign aid dollars. And so when you talk to them about a lawsuit or some other very aggressive approach to dealing with climate change, they lose interest relatively quickly because they don't want to upset the emitting nations. Mm, That is really a catch-22. Do you feel like the government leaders are similar in their outlook on imminent migration to the everyday people, or do you think they have, um, you know, the same types of, of course, everybody's going to say they want to stay, but are they any more fatalistic about the future in terms of having to migrate their populations? And again, I know that that changes from island to island, so maybe mm-hmm. talk about some of the specific islands and their, uh, their attitudes towards that in terms of their government leaders' outlook on what's going to happen in future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I have two really great examples that come to mind and illustrate another catch-22 in terms of how island leadership treats this issue. So 
I think most of your listeners have heard about President Nasheed or ex-President Nasheed in the Maldives. And ex-President Nasheed dedicated a lot of his time and his platform to talking about climate change and how his country would be impacted by rising sea level. He was in pretty high-level talks with countries like Australia and India, Sri Lanka, about moving his population. And it's rumored that he actually started a a savings account of sorts to move his country. But the people in his country, while, of course, worried about climate change, they were much more worried about other world issues that seemed more pressing to them, like the economic meltdown. Mm -hmm. And so he was very criticized within his country for spending too much of his time talking about relocation or climate change in general. And then eventually he was ousted. And while I'm not saying that he was ousted only because of his time spent to climate change, it was one of the major criticisms. Uh-huh. But then I, I just also went to Fiji when I was on this trip, the South Pacific trip, and I visited the site that was rumored to have been purchased or in the midst of purchasing by the country of Kiribati. Kiribati is another very small, low-lying atoll country in the South mm-hmm. Pacific, or the Equatorial Pacific, rather. And there were quite a few stories that were written at the beginning of the year about this rumored land purchase. And people started saying that President Anote Tong was basically preparing to move his country. And I didn't think that was true. That did not sound like what I have heard about President Tong. And so I visited this rumored site and talked to the Anglican church leaders who are the owners of the site and verified that Kiribati was actually in the process of purchasing this land. It's a beautiful piece of property. It's huge. It has low-lying and uh, high mountaintop areas. It's great for agriculture. They can grow rice there, etc. And then at, shortly after that, I traveled to Kiribati and spent quite a bit of time with President Anote Tong, and he did confirm that he has purchased the property, and the purchase will be complete by the end of the year. But he denied that it's for relocation purposes. He's very excited that the country will have the opportunity to relocate if anybody chooses to in the future. But what he wants this land for in the short term is to start growing food and um even just drawing attention to the country's plight because it did get a lot of attention. And so I like that approach because it's both effective in the short term and it's effective in the long term. And the people in his country are really excited about that as well. That That is really interesting because I was wondering what you would say about that. I had read the same things towards the beginning of the year and wondered if that was true. So how very interesting. Well, we are going to be going to a quick commercial break. But when we return, uh, we're going to be talking about some of the specific problems that the island uh, dwellers are dealing with in terms of climate change and what's happening, some of the problems that they have to face day to day. And Brooke's going to bring us up to speed on that. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And also so, so glad to have our guest today, Brooke Meekins. She's an attorney, and she's been working very hard on on an issue that we've frankly never covered on Go Green Radio, and I'm so glad that she's on with us today. We're talking about the plight of people who live in island nations that are facing the very real threat, the very real dangers associated with rising sea levels. And we're going to spend this segment talking about some of those specific problems that they're facing. Again, welcome to Go Green Radio, Brooke. I'm so glad you're with us. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be a part of the show. You know, besides the obvious difficulties that island nations face with rising sea levels, you know, diminishing their acreage, obviously less land mass as the sea begins to rise around them, what are some of the other changes that they're experiencing as a result of climate change patterns? Talk to us about the variety of different issues facing their land. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of the people that I spoke with that have property actually on the water, which again is most of the population in these countries, mm-hmm. they have experienced flooding in their homes. And this is a problem because it leads to mildew and mold and, of course, just ruined possessions. A lot of these people don't have a lot of money to begin with. And so, The flooding is an issue that they really care about, and so a lot of them have constructed their own seawalls, which is difficult when you live on an atoll and you just don't have access to the things that we take for granted, like rocks and dirt and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, some of them have even talked about just trying to build up, which, again, is difficult because they don't have a lot of money to rebuild their homes. Um, Then... Uh, a lot of these people are worried about drought, and that's understandable because, as we know, climate change exacerbates rain cycles, but then it also causes long periods of drought. And Tuvalu actually had six months last year where they went without rain, and that is so much longer than they had ever gone without rain in the past. And so the government had to ration drinking water, 
and then a national emergency was eventually declared, and New Zealand had to airlift fresh water to the country. So oh these my. people are, of, yeah, of course they're very concerned that it might happen again in the future. Um, and we've had shorter periods of drought reported on other atolls as well. And then I don't know if you've talked about freshwater lenses in the past. Not but, really. So go ahead and explain that to our listeners because that is that is something that we haven't covered. Well, freshwater, it would be so interesting if you'd have maybe a scientist or someone who deals specifically in this area talk about this in the future. I would certainly turn into that show. But I have talked with people who know quite a bit about freshwater lenses. And what that is is almost every island has their own freshwater lens, where if you're to dig down at certain points in the island, you'll hit fresh water. But as the sea level rises, that freshwater lens is in danger of becoming infiltrated with salt water. Uh, and then as storms happen, of course, there's wave surges, and so they're also infiltrated that way. And the freshwater lens is a way that islanders rely on drinking water and then also water for agricultural purposes. And now that these freshwater lenses are disappearing, it's having disastrous impacts on island life. And it's it's very common to walk around in these countries and see a yellowing agricultural plants, like their breadfruit trees or their pandanus trees, which they rely on for all sorts of purposes. Coconut palms will yellow or just eventually die and fall. And that's because of the saltwater intrusion. So the freshwater lens issue is, is pretty huge for them. Wow. That's very similar to even uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking with the chairman of the California Energy Commission, and they've commissioned uh, like 36 different studies that have recently been released. And one of the things that they were dealing with is the impact that rising sea levels will have even on the groundwater here in California. And those aquifers, which are similar in in structure to the water lenses where you dig down and extract that water, um, are in danger of becoming brine infested as well. So that's something wow. that it's it's – an issue on the mainland, but far more exacerbated, I'm sure, for the islanders who don't have, you know, a truck of bottled water that could come just in case, you know. I mean, that's, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that when Westerners think about life on an island, we think of lovely tropical fish to eat and beautiful fruit and perhaps some fresh vegetables. And that's just not the reality for people on these islands. It's very difficult for them to grow their own food. So, yes, they have great fish, <laughs> but most of that fish gets shipped out to Westerners anyway or people in Japan. And, um, but it's very difficult for these people to grow their own vegetables. They have some government and aid organization-sponsored farm initiatives going on. But, I mean, the farms that you see are raised beds made of recycled tires with imported soil. So not what we think of. Well, and certainly not necessarily sustainable should there be, you know, a lot of storms or things, other things that would keep outside ships from bringing supplies in. It's not something that, that you can rely on uh, infinitum. I'm wondering yeah. if the inhabitants of these islands decide, hey, you know what, I've got kids and I'm worried about the future and I want to move. Can they adopt, you know, a refugee status and go somewhere to another country and be accepted? I mean, do they have legal protections to do such a thing if they fear for the future of their families? 
They really don't. So I'll go ahead and get the exception out of the way first. The Marshall Islands is a part of the Compact of Free Association with the United States, and that's because of the nuclear legacy that we left in that country. We did a lot of nuclear experimentation, and as a result, the Marshall Islands has incredibly high cancer rates and lots of environmental fallout because of that. And so they are able to travel relatively freely to the United States. So that's the one exception. But for these other islanders, it's very difficult for them to travel outside of their country. And that's not just because it's very expensive to travel from these places and to these places, for that matter. Sure. Um, but they they don't enjoy any sort of legal protection allowing them to get migrant or immigrant status into another country. And I, I actually just blogged about this issue last week because – a man was attempting to get a refugee status in New Zealand. This man was from Kiribati, and he cited on his application climate change as the reason for him trying to move to New Zealand. And New Zealand had to deny his application because climate change just does not fall under the refugee status of the Refugee Convention. And the primary reason for that is that these islanders are not being persecuted by their own countries, and therefore they don't qualify as refugees. And so when we talk about a legal framework for these individuals, we're really just brainstorming or trying to think creatively and outside the box because they just don't fall under any other framework. Well, if that's the plight for individuals and they can't get those legal rights, then I can't imagine what it would be like for an entire nation to relocate and what might be, uh, let's say, you know, if an entire people needed to move, um, what their legal protections might be. Is there any difference under international law dealing with a nation relocation versus an individual relocation? No, there's really not. And, I I mean, it's just going to be that much more difficult for an entire nation to pick up and move. And I think one of the primary reasons for that is that so far individuals in these countries are saying we're not leaving. I had a really interesting experience about a year and a half ago. Columbia Law School and the Republic of the Marshall Islands co-sponsored a seminar of sorts, and it was called Threatened Island Nations. And the point of the seminar was to gather academics and um, leaders from around the world to talk about this issue of what's going to happen when entire countries are leaving and starting elsewhere. And it, it was fascinating. I mean, of course, there were very brilliant people there talking about legal frameworks, lawsuits, things of that nature. But at the end of the conference, one of the representatives from the Marshall Islands got up, and he was very gracious, and he said, thank you so much for putting so much time and effort into this. But I think that you've missed the point. We're not leaving. We're, we're not moving. Our country, our country members won't let us, and we don't want to. And so can you please go back to your <laughs> offices and study some more? Because what we want you to focus on is what we can do to stay, not what we can do to leave. And so I think that we're getting really interesting academics now talking about uh, interesting architectural responses or adaptation measures, um, because the reality is these countries just aren't willing to say, we're going to leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason for that is that there is just no framework or mechanism in order for them to do so. 
Well, I mean, nobody wants to think about leaving home. You know, I mean, this is right. this is their heritage, this is their society, their culture, um, and and that's completely understandable. At the same time, you know, there are obviously those of us who don't want them to suffer harm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. if it comes down to the reality that they have to leave in order to survive, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you know, we need to be ready for that eventuality as well. Um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, especially when we start talking about international issues and economic issues, is that some of these island nations have fishing and mineral rights around their land um, that's very valuable. And right now I'm wondering if their land mass begins to shrink, do the boundaries legally, do the boundaries of their fishing rights and mineral rights shrink as well? Yes. This is this is certainly one of the big fears because a lot of these countries that we've been discussing on the show so far today, their primary source of income is fishing, fishing mm-hmm. licenses and fishing rights. And so as their land continues to shrink, they worry that their exclusive economic zone Mm-hmm. in which they gain income from is shrinking as well. And a lot of these countries already have great difficulty policing and monitoring their borders already or their fishing borders. And so it's difficult for them to even start to measure mm-hmm. where these boundaries start and end. And then, of course, in 50 years, if we start seeing some of these countries disappearing, Academics really don't know what that means for these EEZs to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, and currently under international law, are the boundaries set by distance from the shore or by, you know, latitude and longitudinal um coordinates. The boundaries are rooted to the physical land. And so wow. that is exactly the fear. Yeah, as their land disappears, what's gonna happen to to the basically borders of their land. Wow, that's a huge issue. And I know uh, besides even just the fishing industry, we've read a lot of, of information recently in the last few months about islands that have rich uh, natural gas or oil uh, rights around them and, and the Japanese, the Chinese, and the and the uh, Philippine nations are all kind of looking at some of these Pacific islands um, with mineral rights in mind. So this is going to be something that we need to keep an eye on and something that I'm sure the international community will be very interested in in uh, working on. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk with Brooke about some of the solutions that are actually being worked on and uh, what's coming in terms of international problem solving on this issue. So don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you ever wanted to ask a direct question to a private investigator? If so, you'll want to listen for the Private Eye Nightline with private investigator John Siakio. John and his guest experts will answer your questions about infidelity, drug issues, custody, restraining orders, and more. Sometimes there are sensitive issues involving a family member or other loved one. We're here to help. The Private Eye Nightline is broadcast live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm glad that you could all join us. We've been talking about the plight of island nations and the people who live on those island nations as the seas around them begin to rise. You know, we're going to be hearing more and more about all of the melting glaciers in the Arctic. In fact, I've been tweeting about some of those issues quite a bit. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's really easy. Just go to at Jill Buck and you can follow me. Uh, but one of the things that that is not mentioned as much in some of the articles about the melting glaciers is what's happening to the people who live on islands whose land masses are succumbing to these rising seas. And so our guest today is Brooke Meekins, and she's done a lot of work on this. She's an attorney. She's also dealing with not just you know the climate changes and the adaptations, but some of the legal rights and some of the legal issues that these people are dealing with as we go through it. If you want to check out her blog, it's really cool because it's not just words. It's also beautiful pictures from the trips that she's taken. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.drowningislands.com. Brooke is also a blogger for the Huffington Post, or HuffPo, as most of us cool cats talk about it. So you can check her out there as well. Well, Brooke, as you've just come back from your travels to some of these islands, I'd love to hear what the island people themselves are doing to adapt to climate change you know, they're already experiencing some issues with climate change. What are they doing to adapt? Well, islanders are incredible at adapting. I mean, some would say that they've been doing this for their entire existence. And climate change is, of course, offering them uh, um, a, a much worse issue for them to have to adapt to, and it's happening so fast, but I find that they're doing it very well. So during this most recent trip, I found that these countries or the individuals on them are starting to ration their own water just in 
expectation that droughts will continue to happen. And so instead of seeing one water catchment system on an individual piece of property, oftentimes you'll see two or even three. And that's just something that you wouldn't have seen in the past. And a Real lot of quick, them, I guess you've already... Oh, yeah, go question. ahead. Is that like a rain barrel? I mean, when you talk about a water catchment uh, you know, mechanism... Kind of describe that, what it physically yeah. looks like, how big it is. What are we talking it's about huge. there? It's huge. It's huge. And, you know, I have uh, Drowning Islands has a Facebook page, and I put quite a few pictures up there of water catchments. And I can even put some more up there today after the show. But they're really, really, really big rain barrels. And okay. usually they're made out of some form of plastic so that they're easy to ship because, of course, these come from off-island. And the water will collect on the roof oftentimes and then trickle down into the water catchment. And that's how these people wash their dishes. It's how they drink. It's how they bathe. Wow. So the water catchments are very important to them. Gotcha. Please continue. Sorry to interrupt, but I was just kind of trying to get a mental picture of what these looked like. Yeah, not a problem at all. Uh, So a lot of them are rationing their water and collecting more, and then they're also starting to take charge of their food security. So we've talked a lot about growing their own vegetables. On Tuvalu, I was just really impressed and amazed at the personal gardens. I saw beautiful pumpkins and um, coconuts and things that these people can live on every day. And a, a lot of this depends on active and thriving aid organizations because gardening is expensive for these people. They have to ship in the soil. Um, but it is really cool and encouraging to see that they are trying it effectively. Mm-hmm. And then also these these people are starting to talk about opportunities for their kids. So a lot of them are investing and sending their kids overseas to school or to find jobs because they want their children to be able to adapt in the future if relocation is something that their children do choose. Wow. That's, that's got to be kind of hard. I mean, kind of sad to, to let go of their kids and send them elsewhere to be educated. That's, that's tough. I think it's really sad. I talked with people in Kiribati who have children that are living in New Zealand, some who are living in the United States, and it's hard because they fear that their children won't grow up with the same appreciation of their culture that they would if they stayed on the island. But, you know, I also talked to some islanders who had lived in other parts of the world, some who had been merchant um, fishermen, and then some also who had just gone to school and overseas, and then they come back and they really appreciate their island living culture so much more than I think they had if they hadn't have gone overseas. Oh, that's a good point. Sometimes you don't know what you've got till it's gone. So I I know. (laughs) Um, Now, I know that Panama is doing some work to relocate some of the people living in the chain of islands off of their coast. And I'd really like to talk about that that case study um, specifically. Talk about the template they've created for migration. Um, what do you expect to work well? And what are some of the concerns about what might be absent from that migration template that Panama has created? Well, this one is, is really complex. I've actually traveled to the area that you're talking about. It's called the San Blas Archipelago. Yep. And it's just right off the tip of Panama. And um, the, the people that inhabit that part of the world are called the Kuna. And they are semi-autonomous from Panama. So they enjoy a lot of autonomy, and they've fought very hard for that. They're, they've actually been called the most 
autonomous and intact indigenous culture in the world. They're wow. the second smallest people group after the pygmies. So I'm, I'm a very short person, and in all of my photos, I just tower over these people. <laughs> um, so that just goes to show you how fiercely they've protected their culture, um, despite mm-hmm. multiple attempts to indoctrinate and assimilate them into Panamanian culture. So, so this group of people is really taking charge of their own relocation, which in terms of a human rights perspective, that's the most important thing that we want islanders or um, coastal communities to do when they think about and talk about relocation. It's important that they take charge of the process so that they end up uh, being happier with the end result. Sure. Um, and they're certainly doing that. But interestingly, they so they have some mainland within their land holding, and they call that the Comarca, and that's their way of calling it a sacred forest. And so up until now, they lived on the islands that were abutting this Comarca, and they never considered moving into the Comarca because it's sacred and they're not supposed to live there. And also they preferred living on the islands because they're, they're islanders. Sure. But the, now they're eyeing the Comarca because that's their only place that they can move to. And it's, it's high, um, you know, there's mountains there, and so it would be more preferable in terms of the long run for them to live there. But the government of Panama had offered this comarca, the sacred forest, as a carbon sink for a red project that's part of the UNFCCC, the United right. Nations Framework. Okay, you probably talked about that on your show in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the government here is going behind the Kuna's back and offering this carbon sink to emitting nations. But the, the Kuna are radically opposed to that, not only because they might want to live there in the future, but also because that is sacred, that's sacred forest for them. Uh-huh. And so, so now Panama and the Kuna find each other at odds or find themselves at odds with each other. And so that project, that relocation project has been complicated by that factor. Uh-huh. It's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening with this relocation. And I think that there will be a lot that other potential relocation projects can learn from this because, again, the Kuna have just really held their cards close because they are so autonomous and they like making their own decisions. I just also visited a small relocation project in Fiji on the on the island of Vanuatu, uh-huh. and the government of Fiji is actually working with this small village. The village has about 150 people in it. And when the village approached the government of Fiji and said, we need to move because we have flooding issues and um, quite a bit of storms, and then also the sea level rises started to infiltrate their homes and their gardening, mm-hmm. the government said, sure, we'll help. As long as you pitch in one-third of the capital, we'll pitch in the remaining two-thirds. You can choose where you go. You can help plan and design your homes. And so that has been a very successful relocation project. I met with the villagers, and, I mean, they beam and they smile when they talk about their new homes. You know, it's just so interesting because, honestly, until 
you know, we had planned this show with you, I hadn't considered this very important point. If an entire island nation has to relocate somewhere um, to another mainland or somewhere else, th- the idea of them maintaining their sovereign nationhood is is so incredibly complicated. I mean, if you just think about it, you know, I, I live in a little town in California, and if we were unable to stay in the whole town, we're going to move over to another town. What's the likelihood that we'd be able to keep our mayor, our city council, make our own decisions and all of that? Like nil, we would just have to integrate into the host you know, community. And it's such an interesting problem. And I'm wondering what the UN is doing about this as we look at the possibility of entire nations having to move themselves away from, you know, the, their homeland and how in the world they can possibly have any legal protections to maintain their sovereignty. Sovereignty. What's going on with that? Well, Unfortunately, at the UN, we're still talking more about um, much more preliminary issues. So mm-hmm. this this has come up in the context of the UNFCCC, the Framework on Climate Change Convention. Um, and, of course, the UN spends lots of resources and time discussing the issue of climate change. But it's really up to the countries that are part of these negotiations to decide what this what the topic of conversation is. And so far we're still bogged down in talking about who's responsible for what and who gets to continue emitting how much. Mm -hmm. And so we're not able to talk about the very important and difficult topic of future relocation. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm concerned, honestly. I'm a former military officer, and I get concerned when we don't have a good plan in place, and if we wait until it becomes a crisis, sometimes the best solutions are not reached during a crisis, and that's when conflict can arise. So, I hope um, I hope that we can get get going on this because I, I I foresee if we're already starting to migrate some populations, like in the Panamanian area, that uh, as sea levels rise, and scientists are telling us that the Arctic is melting faster than they ever could have imagined, that some of these situations may become much more front burner in terms of moving populations that we really need to be sure the international community is ready to do this in a friendly manner, let's just say. Yeah, We've that's, take that's a- absolutely correct. Yep. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about maybe the most important issue in this show, and that is what each and every one of us can do to be part of the solution to this problem. So don't go away, folks. We've got more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? 
Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvana alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Racism. Healing. Oneness of humankind. It is time to join millions of people all over the world who openly talk about racial healing. Some of us are not sure how to tread when discussing race and culture. Until now. Tune in to A Safe Place to Talk About Race with host Sharon E. Davis. Engage with experts and notables. Have a question but are not sure how to ask it? Test it out with our show. It's a safe harbor to explore views and situations that we face every day. A Safe Place to Talk About Race airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Well, welcome back to Go Green Radio. You know, today's topic has really been an eye-opener because I read so many news articles in the Associated Press and Thomson Reuters about what's going on with uh, the Arctic melt. And they're talking about how scientists are saying that those glaciers up there are melting faster than they – even their most uh, aggressive uh, – measurements that they've taken over the last few decades and they're really concerned that sea levels are going to rise much faster than than was previously predicted and while on this show we've covered you know what will happen to marine life what's going on with ocean acidification and coral reefs we really haven't discussed until today the impact that 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 sea level rise is having on the people who live on islands whose land masses are so very threatened by the rising sea levels and we've been able to cover that today with Brooke Meekins who's an attorney and she's got a great site drowningislands.com she's also got a great Facebook page and I really encourage you to get out there and take a look at it. Brooke, you know, I know that a lot of the people who are living on the islands are doing their best to adapt to the climate changes that they're experiencing, but I'd like for you to give our listeners um, some some concrete actions that we can take as everyday people here in the U.S. and around the world to be part of the solution for these people. What can we do? Well, I think that the most important thing that we can do right now is start to raise awareness and our individual understanding about emissions and how our daily activities impact people on these islands. So while it sounds really soft and perhaps vague, I think it's really important to take charge and to take responsibility of how our daily decisions are impacting people on these islands. I think that it's very easy for us to sit inside of our air-conditioned or heated homes or our SUVs or our fancy grocery stores and think that this problem is very far removed from our daily lives, but it's not. The way that we live every day has an actual impact on people on what I call drowning islands. So I think that as we build our awareness about that, um, it's going to create a real difference in the future. 
And then, of course, I, I mean, I have to say this because we're getting so close to election time. Um, I don't, I don't have to be political, but I think it's very important to understand that the 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 voting decisions that we make have impacts on these international treaties and on the negotiations in a very real way. So I think that voting um, on a national level, but then also on a local level, is very important when it comes to drowning island issues and climate change issues. And then I also think if you're planning on taking a vacation, so if you're already planning on basically using those emissions to get somewhere, I think that your listeners would love taking a trip to one of these locations. It can be very eye-opening to live the way that um, someone on the drowning island lives, even just for a couple of days. And then you can have these conversations that start to raise awareness in your own life. And then, of course, when you get back, you can share your experience with others. Absolutely. Well, and then it doesn't hurt for us to help their economies by spending a few uh, shekels, <laughs> you know, in their right. local communities as well. I mean, there is an economic piece to all of this. And, you know, even if they're able to stay on their, their island homes, uh, being able to clean up after these, you know, ever increasingly intense storms and flooding and things like that, that all takes funding. So helping to spur on their local economies is a, is a great way to contribute. I hadn't thought of that. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, that's you know, absolutely right. And a lot of these countries, well, in fact, everyone that we've talked about right now, they only have very small scale, very green eco ends. And so the kind of trip that you take to these places is just very different than your average trip to, let's say, Cancun or Disney World. <laughs> uh huh. Although we love those as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> those no, that's are fun. Right. <laughs> now, Brooke, you're an attorney and you're using your, uh, your law degree to volunteer and engage in the legal aspects of this issue. For our listeners out there who are in other fields of work, what are some of the other skill sets that, that this issue is in need of? I mean, we've got engineers, architects, journalists, nonprofit organizations and whatnot, all different types of skill sets and people who are listening. What are some of the other professions that you'd love to see getting involved in these issues? Well, I think that I think that the mistake is to wait around to find the perfect A organization that fits your cause. I remember when I was in law school, I went and talked to my career center because I knew that this was the kind of work that I wanted to do. And they they basically advised that I needed to find the right structure in order to aid what it was that I wanted for for my future. And the more and more that I looked uh, at the organizations that existed, the more discouraged I felt because I thought, well, that's not the right fit or I can't do this or I can't afford to do that. But in reality, I think that individuals can do a lot of help when they just find someone to connect with on one of these islands. So, for instance, if there's an engineer that has a burning desire to go and help one of these um, countries or one of these communities, if they just connect with another individual in one of these communities, then the individual would love (laughs) to Mm. present an opportunity of help. And I would be more than happy to help any of your listeners. So, if there's an architect or an artist or a journalist or someone who has nonprofit experience who wants to go and help, I would encourage them to, I mean, just start by Googling um, 
someone in their field on one of these islands, and then they'd be amazed at how quickly they would get a response. And again, mm-hmm. I'd be more than happy to help connect any of your listeners with an opportunity. How could they contact you, Brooke? How, how do you want them to reach out to you if they would like to get plugged into this network? Great. Well, I have an email address for Drowning Islands. It's drowningislands at gmail.com. Okay. And then also, like you've already mentioned, I have a Facebook page, and there's lots of beautiful pictures of these locations on that Facebook page, and that's just called Drowning Islands. Mm-hmm. And then I think that you've already mentioned that I have a blog on the Huffington Post, and that can be a good way to connect as well. I'm also on Twitter, and my handle is Drowning Islands. And then you've already talked about my website as well, www.drowningislands.com. All right. So if you're out there and you have a skill set that you'd like to deploy and help uh, and help these folks with their problems, we've been listening to some of the issues that they're dealing with and you feel like you might have a solution, that's a way that you can get plugged in. You know, Brooke, we often have high school students and college students who listen to Go Green Radio, and I'm wondering if you have a message for them. You know, they probably have a message for me. I find the more <laughs> traveling and I'm um, talking about this topic that I do, I find that children are so on top of it when it comes to issues of environmentalism and climate change. So I would say to anyone who's listening who's of the younger generation, more power to you. Continue to teach us, um, the older generations, what you've learned and your perspective on climate change and environmentalism. And please don't think that just because you're young, you don't have anything to offer. I would argue exactly the opposite. We're the ones that need to listen to the younger generation rather than vice versa. Okay, I'm freaked out because you're 30 years old and you're talking about <laughs> being part of the older generation. <laughs> I'm just a bit older than you. But at any rate, no, that's a very great message. And I feel the same way. Um, I hope that any of our younger listeners who are tuning in will actually look to you, Brooke, as a role model, somebody who's just out of law school. She's not going to wait around for somebody else to tell her how to get plugged in. She just did it. Take the initiative. If you have a passion get involved. And if you're in in desire of getting involved with Brooke and her work with the Drowning Nations, get on her website at drowningislands.com and do just that. Well, thanks everybody for listening to Go Green Radio. Thank you, Brooke, for being on with us. We're going to be back the same time, same place next week. Actually, next week, our guest will be from the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're going to be talking about the drought our country has been experiencing and some of the upshots to um, to that situation. So don't hesitate to uh, Tune in next week, same time, same place, with more Go Green Radio. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.